to hear some good news this morning, I think. Do any of us need our broken, broken world? I know that we are not uh, culturally or historically a call and response church. And so when I say, do you need some good news this morning, I don't expect that anyone's going to stand up and say, yes. But we do. And maybe sometimes our silence says something about how we don't always consider just how deep our need for good news is, at least until something happens. Something happens in our lives, something happens to the people we care about, something happens in our world. If you're a Christian, then you believe that everyone needs good news. Why? Well, the Apostle Paul says, "Do, do we, and he's talking to Christians, to followers of Jesus, do we have any advantage? Not at all. We have already made the charge, he says, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. The Apostle Paul wrote those words 2,000 years ago, and of course, there's no way he could have known about the events of this past week. To reframe Paul's words, Israelis and Palestinians this week have shared in the power of sin, which Scripture says is death. Over 3,000 civilians dead in Israel and Gaza, and we almost certainly expect to know that there will be more to come. And that's to say nothing of the ongoing violence and unrest in uh, Ukraine, in Guatemala, and in other places around our world. Even on a smaller scale, in many of our own lives, there remains unrest, there remains brokenness, there remains great pain. Two weeks ago, I preached about injustice and reconciliation. That was all the way back at October 1st, Truth and Reconciliation Weekend in Canada. And I said that one of the unjust things about injustice is that it always affects people unequally. It cuts unequally across our world. And so this week, if you're watching the news, you see uh, Hamas, this violent militant group, massacring Israeli civilians. Then the Israeli military retaliating, and many more Palestinian uh, civilians are dead as well. And then as we just sang, I'm finding myself at a loss for words. Pastor Harrison and I had planned this sermon series and this particular Sunday well in advance and made the decision to stick with, I made the decision this week, to stick with the topic of forgiveness, which more and more in our world seems very difficult, very challenging. I read this week an interview that uh, Golan Abitbol, who was a lifelong resident of Kibbutz Be'eri in Israel, he gave an interview to the New York Times after Hamas extremists attacked his village, killed many people, and took others as hostages. He said in this interview, my older kids saw the bodies. They knew about their friends that were kidnapped and slaughtered. They know, and they'll never be kids again. Or consider another story. Here's a picture behind me. This is a child looking over the ruins of his community in Gaza after the Israeli military dropped a bomb on the Gaza Strip. 
There's been even more devastation since that picture was taken in the middle of the week. We live in a world, or we live in a country in a world where often in Canada we have the privileged position of being isolated from what seem to be some of the worst conflicts in our world. When we talk about forgiveness, we often talk about it on a small and personal scale. We're hurt by small offenses from others. We're often taught and helped to forgive in the context of personal things. Some injury or theft or loss. Some tension between me and one other person or a few other people. But what about forgiveness in the context of larger systems of evil? Injustice, power, and abuse. What does forgiveness mean for these two children? The one in the story and the one in the picture. When this is all over, whatever that looks like, Lord willing, they will both be alive, but then what? Then what? As we think about forgiveness We need to remember what forgiveness is, but also what forgiveness isn't. And so to do that again, to frame forgiveness in the context of wisdom, I want to invite you to follow along as I read for us a few verses from the book of Proverbs. And again, we've been looking at Proverbs as our jumping off point and our base as we continue this series on wisdom. So this is what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 10. Uh, We're just going to read four verses, verses 9 through 12. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. Whoever winks maliciously causes grief, and a chattering fool comes to ruin. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. So far, the reading of God's Word. It may be comparatively easy to tell our own children or to tell ourselves that when someone hurts you, forgive them. But the pain and injustice of our world goes far beyond the wrongs that one person does to another. Everywhere in our world, it seems, and more and more as we look, There's collateral damage to wars between governments or or, uh, countries, to financial greed of the richest in our society and in our world, to sexual desires of powerful men, to the next generation who inherit the various conflicts of their parents and grandparents and the generations who have come before. So this morning I know that I will do an imperfect job, an insufficient job, but with, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we hope that we can begin to take one or two steps to understand and move forward together what is, as, we, as we explore what does it mean to actually forgive in situations of complex evil and injustice and sin. And also... We'll begin by wondering, what does forgiveness actually do? We're going to start with that question of what does forgiveness do, because in some ways it's an easier question. 
We might look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, that last little verse that we read, and say, well, we know it makes sense that hatred stirs up conflict, but can love really cover over wrongs? Can love really cover over wrongs? To begin to answer this, I want to give you just one picture of what forgiveness is in the Old Testament. God says to his people in Isaiah 1 verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like wool. That's a pretty profound picture. Though your, excuse me, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Marvin Wilson, in his book, Our Father Abraham, says that this word translated crimson is tola. You don't need to remember that. But tola isn't a word that means, first of all, it means red. Crimson is a word that, or that tola word is a word that first means worm. And Isaiah used that word because this tola worm was a worm. It was a little maggot that was used by the ancient Israelites and many others. It was boiled, and it was crushed, and it, when it was killed and crushed and placed in hot water, it produced this bright red color that was color fast. It was indelible. It was valuable in the ancient dyeing industry. If you wanted to make red fabric and make sure that that red never went away, you used one of these little tola, or actually many of these little tola larvae or maggots. If you've been seriously wronged, you might feel like everything in your life is stained red by that wrong. It's a crazy picture, if you think about it, the picture that Isaiah uses. Can red, can blood, can crimson really be washed white? When you look around and everything you see, everything you touch, everything you try is stained with this red and touched by the offense, can it really be made clean, better once again? In many cases, it seems like revenge is, a most, is the most reasonable option. If my life is stained and affected in a way that can't be cleaned, well, then at least their life will be too. Then even if things aren't better, at least they'll be even. In the situation where great wrong has been done to us, it often seems impossible, if not ridiculous, to believe that something like the red stain turning white can ever be cleaned up ever be covered over, or ever made right. It seems impossible. Maybe you've noticed this about the teachings of Jesus. People today don't often dismiss Jesus because they think he's wrong, or mean, or bad. People most often dismiss Jesus because they think he was unrealistic. Or they think the things that he teaches are too difficult or too hard. It's a shocking indictment of Christianity that people might well dismiss Christians 
because they think that Christians are wrong or mean or bad. But if and when people dismiss Jesus, it's usually because they think, well, his way will never work. It's too unrealistic. It doesn't work in a world as complex and broken as ours. When you've been wronged and sinned against, not just in a small way and not just in a personal way, but in a significant way that affects your life, your livelihood, your family, one of the first things that's taken away from you is hope. We may be able to distract ourselves from a war or, or other wars going on around the world as long as they're far away. But for those living in, in Gaza today, for those living in Israel, there's very little expectation that things will be better. Not today, not tomorrow, maybe not even in a next generation. Their only hope their only human hope is a grim hope to make, the to make their enemies suffer more no matter what the cost. To do what was done to me because what was done to me takes up more and more space in my heart, in my life, and in the lives of those I care about. Without forgiveness, the stain only spreads. So this is what forgiveness does. And forgiveness, whether it's possible or not, whether it's realistic or not, forgiveness is the only thing that can bring an end to the cycle of revenge and retribution. It's the only thing, whether it's actually possible or not, that can stop the stain from spreading. Forgiveness also offers dignity and hope to the offended party. So often after great wrong has been done to us, that wrong goes on to define our lives for not just days or weeks, but months and years and decades and even generations. Forgiveness allows us to be defined by something else. And finally, forgiveness opens up relationship, or the possibility of relationship between the offender and the offended party in human terms, or between humanity and God in terms of our relationship with him. Make no mistake, as I said, people not only turn away from the way of Jesus because it seems unrealistic, but also because it's very difficult. And forgiveness, whether it's some small thing or whether it's a big thing, is very costly. It's very costly. You may have heard the story of the Bible so many times that it hardly seems remarkable anymore. But as Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, killed by people who were too concerned about themselves and about losing their power or their position, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Or what about Peter, who denied Jesus three times? Jesus forgave him and reinstated him as a disciple, as, as someone whom Jesus loved. Or the Apostle Paul, who later years was actively pers persecuting Jesus, 
actively persecuting Jesus, actively persecuting his followers. But Jesus forgave him also and gave him a new purpose. The stain of sin after the fall, going back to the beginning, spread to touch every part of the world. But the forgiveness of God through the death of Jesus is the greatest hope and the greatest story of hope in the world. Only in Jesus do Christians begin to see the stain of sin rolled back and pulled back, even in some small places and in some bigger ones as well. This week, as I looked around Calgary and around our world, I read and and observed several important statements about grief. There was some services, some protests here in Calgary and around the world. And grief is obviously very present and very important to acknowledge. And when we talk about forgiveness, we need to remember that as Christians, we grieve too. Christians do not just forgive and that makes everything okay. Not at all. Christians grieve, but we do not grieve with the rest of humanity who have no hope. Hope in the darkness is powerful. And forgiveness is the only way to begin to find hope. So as we continue this sermon, uh, that last question in a couple parts, what we're going to look at is, what does it mean to actually begin to forgive in these situations of complex evil and injustice and sin? When it's not so simple as looking one person in the face, The first thing we need to do, we've got about three here, if we want to actually begin to forgive on some macro big scale or just in the context of our own lives, the first thing we need to do and if we want to begin the journey of forgiving is to know the bigger story. Again, we can consider the violence and evil in Israel and in Gaza this week. Do you know the whole story? You might know that Hamas militants last week broke down fences and attacked Israeli communities. You might know that they murdered many people and took others hostage. But do you know why those fences were put there in the first place? You might know that the conflict between Israel and Palestine goes back many years. But did you know that Hamas is an extremist militant group, and they took control, control of the Gaza Strip only in 2007, relatively recently. On the other hand, did you know that way back in 1948, the state of Israel was officially created in Palestine after Western countries moved many Jews from Europe and from America into the Middle East, into Palestine after World War II? Did you know that Israel annexed East East Jerusalem from Palestine in 1967? We're not here specifically to talk about this conflict. My point is simply that the roots of this conflict go back decades and generations. They go back further and wider than we can imagine or know sitting across an ocean. 
If there's any possibility for forgiveness and for hope, we must begin by knowing the story more and better. Our simple answers or our our one-sided solutions, our thoughts and prayers come up empty if we use them apart from a a wise consideration of the broader story, a fuller understanding. Again, consider that if we really want to know the story of some other conflict, big or small, it's going to take a lot of work. Understanding the stories that we are each a part of requires but also offers humility to those of us who are proud and who think that we quickly can understand and quickly offer answers. But understanding the story can also offer dignity to those of us who are weak. In modern terms, taking time to understand the broader context is, we might say, an integrity move. And Proverbs reminds us that those who walk in integrity walk securely. Integrity and wisdom require knowing more fully. If it takes a lot of time and energy to research some other conflict, then consider your own life, your own story for a moment. If we're going to explore the story of our own lives, if we're going to explore our own experiences, that will not only take a lot of time and energy, but it will also take a lot of emotional strength. And it will take empathy. If we just go with our gut reaction, if we go, as Proverbs would say, from a place of folly, if we go without wisdom, we might think that, well, uh, the offenders are bad, but I am good. The other side is bad, and my side is good. As individuals, we tend to water down what we do. We explain away our reactions. Our experiences and our reasons don't have to be mediated or explained to us. We know them intrinsically and they make sense to us. Even if we can't understand how our actions affect other people. We feel, likewise, without forgiveness, we'll feel a a need or, or a responsibility even to dwell on other people's actions, to dwell on their hurt toward us. We feel a stronger and stronger need to respond to what others do. They're bad. I'm good. Problem is that without wisdom, others feel exactly the same way about me. They might say that he's bad and I'm good. They will think that their actions are small, but be very critical and probably more accurate or maybe even exaggerate what I have done. The hollow promise of revenge is always that we can be rid of our enemy, or at least that we can make them suffer like I suffer, like we suffer. This is not a hopeful situation, and also it's not a long-term strategy, even though it makes sense. In the moment. This is why revenge is always a hollow promise. Because after that, then what? 
After we take our revenge, then what will our children think or believe or be left with to work, to, to work with? Contrast that to the hopeful promise of forgiveness, of empathy. The promise that in some way, in a broken and unjust world, we might be able to find some strength, some wholeness, some healing in the midst of a world that continues to be wrong. When you have been wronged, and I very consciously say when and not if, but when you have been wronged, and when you begin to understand the story and the context surrounding your hurt and the harm that has been done to you, brothers and sisters, it takes an act of God to be able to look up from yourself and wonder about others. Empathy and forgiveness is not something we do in our own strength. It's not something we do when we're strong enough or, or smart enough or far removed enough. Forgiveness and empathy is a gift from God. It's part of the wisdom that God gives his people Generally, he gives to all his creatures and specifically through his grace to those whom he has called and whom he loves. When in the midst of your hurt and brokenness, you seek God's wisdom, God will give you insight. He will give you empathy. You'll begin to wonder, how do others see the world? Why do they do what they do? What do they need? What do they value? What difficult situations are they also in and how might God care for them too apart from God apart from his gift of empathy and forgiveness we walk down the street as when we're hurt and we feel so discouraged and wronged that we have little hope and when our when our head is down and we're so discouraged we cannot and do not watch out for folly, for foolishness, for traps along the way. We're so busy focused on our desperate and difficult situation and on ourselves that we can't consider others, much less look up and wonder what's ahead. When we're hurting, when we don't have empathy, not only are we not able to interact with others or care for others, but also we don't even see ourselves fully. We see mostly or even only the hurt done to us, the hurt caused us. We miss out on a bigger picture, an honest picture, and an honoring picture of ourselves. Only once we begin to grow in empathy and look up from ourselves do we begin to understand the dignity? Do you begin to understand the dignity and the honor that is yours because of the good news of Jesus? The dignity and the honors that is intrinsically yours that no one can take away from you. When we see only our hurt, we miss out on the fullness of who God has made us to be, on the image that he has given you that cannot be taken away. But when we do, when we step back and we receive that gift, the seed of forgiveness 
from God in our hearts, the seeds of empathy, we begin to have hope and wisdom. We begin to have eyes and, and a heart to discern God's voice, not only about others, but also about us. To look up, to watch out for the voice of folly, to beware of those uh, empty and hollow promises of revenge. We begin to receive the care that God has for us. As you receive God's care for you, you may also slowly but surely grow in your ability to discern, your ability and your desire to care for others and to receive from others once again. The death of Jesus levels the playing field so that we can not only be defined, or let me start that over, excuse me. The death of Jesus levels the playing field so that we can not only not be defined by our sin, but also we might not be defined by what others have done to us. Can you imagine a world where you are not defined by your sin? Where you are not defined by what others have done to us, done to you? That's good news. That's the only hope for us to be able to end the ever-spreading stain of violence and revenge. It's the only hope for us to be able to find dignity as individuals and dignity as a humanity. If we find our defining feature not in what others have said to us, not in what we have done or what has been done to us, but in something deeper and in something more. You see, Christ, when, as he was dying on the cross with his arms stretched out, you may know, I already said it, he said, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. Jesus knew something that those who persecuted him didn't know. Jesus knew something about humanity that many people do not know or understand. It's not a secret. It's been revealed to God's people from the beginning. This is what Jesus knew and what he knows. That you were made to live forever. You were made to live forever. Our focus is so often on what we need now and what we want now. But Christ's focus is always larger. He was not only focused on others instead of himself, he was also focused on others in the context of eternity. Because this sermon was already so long, I cut out a part looking back at Proverbs chapter 9 which talks about this folly, this woman who drags people or invites people, tempts people into her house. And when they get there, they find that it's actually not a party. It's full of death. You can read it on your own and your own time. But the house of folly, of going our own way, of, of this stain of unforgiveness spreading the picture of folly as a house of death is a scary picture in the short term. But living death in the context of eternity is hell. Killing your enemies or making those person who has wronged you, making them suffer in this world might remove the threat for some short period of time. But if you find them back in eternity, 
you will have no peace there either. And so Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We can't live as Christians without forgiving. It's simply not possible. Jesus teaches Christians to ask, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. In other words, if we're not willing to forgive others, we miss out on experiencing Christ's forgiveness in this world now. Put another way, if we're not willing to forgive others, we allow the wrongs that others have caused us to continue to punish us, to continue to define us, to continue to affect our lives. Forgiving others is the only way to allow God's kingdom to redefine and even redeem our lives. Consider again the challenge of forgiveness in the context of eternity. C.S. Lewis, a Christian author writing in about the 1950s, puts it this way. He says, you can read on the screen behind me too. He says, there's no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, the things that we build, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This doesn't mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of the kind, and is in fact the merriest kind, he says, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Sin, violence, systemic evil in our world is so serious because it violates God's people. Because it violates humans. And forgiveness is also so serious and so important because God takes seriously each person that he has created. God did not make you and he did not make anyone so that we might become, to use C.S. Lewis's words, immortal horrors. He did not make us to be defined by the violence and pain and brokenness and injustice of our world or our situation or our experiences. God made us to be with him forever in everlasting splendor. He made you so that you might be forgiven, redefined, redeemed by Christ. If you allow the forgiveness of God and the kingdom of God to redefine and redeem you now, then that change will spill over into every part of your life, even to those who have wronged you, whether you really want that or not. Forgiveness does not fix a broken system. We need more sermons and more than talk and ideas. We need work. We need God's people gathered around the world working for justice, working to, excuse me, 
Sorry. Forgiveness does not fix every wrong in our world. Christians are called to seek justice and work for justice. Christians are called to hold accountable people who have done wrong. To work for justice in our society and in our world. To work for fairness. To care for widows and orphans. And to go to, not away from, violence and injustice. With the hope of the gospel. Forgiveness does not correct all of the wrongs in our world. What it does is it opens the possibility for you as one person whom God loves to begin working even now on something beautiful, something eternal, something transformative. Forgiveness allows you to begin building and repairing and fixing what is broken now so that you and we might even taste the goodness and the beauty of God's kingdom in eternity now. So as we close, as we conclude, I want to summarize, just take one more minute to hopefully summarize this way. What does it mean to begin to actually forgive in situations of complex evil, injustice, and sin. And we'll get to what's on the screen in a minute. First, it's to know that story. The bigger story of our hurt, the bigger story of our present situation, but also the bigger story that we were made for eternity. Second, to actually forgive is to look up from our brokenness with God's strength so that we might be defined by something better than our hurt, that we might be defined by God's glory and by his love. Finally, to, have, to, to begin to forgive is to have wisdom and empathy, to receive these gifts from God that we might consider ourselves and others in light of eternity, that we might begin to experience God's kingdom, his power, his glory, and his beauty already now or again now. And we'll end with these words on the screen behind me. Forgiveness does not make a wrong world right. Forgiveness allows us to live rightly as individuals in a world where so much is wrong. When we forgive, when we begin to forgive, we prove to ourselves and to others that even in our broken state, God's power is within us. God's power is shaping us. God's power is animating us. And God's glory is dignifying us. Brothers and sisters, that's good news. Christ in us, even in the midst of a broken world. Please pray with me. Father God, teach us to see ourselves in the broader picture. Through your Holy Spirit's power and your love and your forgiveness, may we know that we are not defined by the things that have been done to us or the things that even that we have done. But may we, be, may we begin more and more to be defined by your great love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.